Tonight I'd like to talk about, or the title of it, of the talk tonight is, um, What's Love Got to Do With It? Hmm. I took it from a Tina Turner song. (laughs) Actually, I took it from a question that a yogi once asked me, who was feeling very dry about his practice. And he was feeling the distance that sometimes people feel in Vipassana, where they're not intimately involved with their experience and they're holding their experience at bay in a certain arm's distance way. A very unsatisfying distance and a very dry and non-intimate space. So I'd like to address that question tonight uh, because um, it has everything to do with it. So that's the answer. And I thought I'd, I'd start by reading a um, often-read couplet of the Dhammapada, but one which uh, is infinite in its wisdom and applicability. He abused me, beat me, vanished me, robbed me, Those in whom such thoughts find refuge will never still their wrath. Never in this world can hatred be stilled by hatred. It will be stilled only by non-hatred, love. That is the eternal law. I think uh, many of us get a feeling for that eternal law in the circumstances of some of the conflicts that are obvious throughout our times and how one side will do something to the other side only to cause a retaliation and on it goes forever into the very distant future. Each side having a certain self-righteousness when pain is inflicted upon them that leads to the creation of additional pain being inflicted upon the other party. And you just, you never, it's always from a self-righteous position and it never ends. And the Buddha, in his wisdom, said it will never end. Now, we get a feeling for that, I think, as we watch the conflicts around the world. But do we also get a feeling for that in our own reactions to those conflicts? I remember uh, growing up in the 60s, with the peace movement at that time being extraordinarily reactive to the Vietnam War to the point where they would do things like burn down armories. And and even then, in my youth, I could see that that response was the very response which caused the war in the first place and that it was incumbent upon all of us in some way or other to find a deeper level of peace within ourselves, of stillness, of love, which wouldn't come from that place that created the chism, the separation, that eventually led to the conflict. And when you get out of here and you start reading the news, remember that regardless of what that news may be. 
So I'd like to fall back on and milk this metaphor one more time. <laughs> if you don't mind. For the purpose of the tape, it's, I'm shining a flashlight. And I would like to look at the Buddha's words in relationship to our own internal response. Because as you remember where we left off on the story (laughs) was that a light was being shined upon our mind and that in that stillness there was clear seeing, wisdom, understanding. But what I forgot to mention or perhaps didn't emphasize was that within that stillness there was also love. And that in holding that light still, not only is everything revealed externally, but everything is revealed internally. Because love is a clear glass without borders or boundaries. And if We are watching, for instance, anger, and we apply the wisdom of the Buddha's words that only through love will anger cease, not through hatred of my anger. If I move or deflect from my anger, it is because I do not like my anger, and therefore I am perpetuating the endless cycle of my anger within my consciousness. But if I hold in stillness with that anger, then I meet my anger with love. And it is no more. To remember the power of the still mind has the power of love. And then when we come upon conflicts and difficulties, which we inevitably will, to be aware of what we add to that conflict in terms of our own reactivity. For love is an extraordinarily influential quality. It is sung about and fought over like no other quality of human existence. And therefore, it also, because of its power, has equal power to manipulate and distort if used in the wrong way. Some family systems in the name of love do enormous harm to the kids who are raised in that medium. And is it any wonder that when some of us who've had that kind of childhood come to a meditation retreat, we have no ability to contact our love because in the name of love, some of these crimes were committed. Crimes to our mind, scars to ourselves. How can we ever have the faith that we could open up to something that would reveal or allow love again when we have had that kind of complicated history 
with our family in the name of love. So it's with infinite patience and infinite sensitivity that we approach the question of looking at ourselves. The trust that it requires. The trust to know that if I shine my light there, something won't come spitting back at me. That if I open myself to the range of my emotions or feelings, like I saw my parents do, or whomever, that that won't come back at me in the same way it did when I was young. The trust that I have to have just to shine the light and the courage that it takes to sustain that light. So I give each one of you credit for your courage this week. For there has been a great deal of sincerity shown by each and every one of you. Love in the shining of this light on an object, you can feel what it means to love because you're not asking anything from the object from which you are shining it upon. You're not judging it because judgment would just be movement in relationship to that thing. Your opinions are in abeyance or non-existent. And all you're doing is accessing that thing with no demands whatsoever. So there is total safety in our ability to see and our willingness to look. Nothing comes back at us because of the safety of our willingness to see, except what the thing is itself. So we don't complicate the thing with a lot of prejudged ideas about it, or that's not love. You see, we started talking in this retreat about the fact that we hold everything. We start with love. We can't work our way into love. There's no ladder that gets us there. You drop into it. It's not a progression of being starting with a little affection and working your way up. We're either in love or we're not. And whenever we're willing to look, we're there. Whenever we're willing to see, and it's not only internally, it's externally as well. Whenever we're willing to listen to another person, we are giving that person the very thing that the light of our awareness gives us internally. It's giving somebody the value of, you, of our attention. And from that, we're offering them the highest gift that we can offer another human being, and that is the gift of our understanding. Think what it means to be held with attention and to be understood. Is that not love? Just to see and to hear, to listen. 
Oh, but all too often, the power of that love, the power of our minds, begins to distort that attention. And in our professionalism, in our sophistication, we don't listen, but we listen not as two human beings. It has to be two human beings, or it's not... The light isn't shining evenly. It has to shine evenly. If I'm more than you, I will listen from that leverage. And from that leverage, you will hear from the slant. And it may be your need to hear from some authority. So you will come and seek out an authority to have someone listen to you because you don't feel your own empowerment of your own love. And you'll give away your empowerment in order to receive some assurance that you're okay from an authority. But two human beings can only, love can only, we can only meet in love with two human beings. Which means that we sit and we just share, we open. And our heart moves with one another's responses. And we hold that. We don't want anything from the person. To try to influence that person is to take your empowerment and distort the other person's love. So I won't do that. I won't do that because I see the truth of 2,500 years. I see that. And if I want you to grow, I will not influence you. I will not tell you this or that. I will treat you as a human being. And so the sincere student seeks out a teacher to meet that person eyeball to eyeball, to challenge, to play, to inquire the spirit of the retreat that Christopher and Chartres so nicely display. The dance, the movement, the questioning, the combat, yeah, nah, nah, all of that from two human beings, one to another. But mostly, our love gets sidetracked. It gets covered over. It gets laced into the forms of the world. I worked at an agency that uh, had a union, labor union, and I was part of management. Now, you work with death and dying. Everybody is in it together. You don't separate yourself out as management and labor when you work in death and dying, but this agency, long before I had come to it, had decided to do so. So, we would meet in the room, and it became very obvious early on that the labor and the management defined each other by their opposition. And in their opposition, they could then have their identity of management and labor and come to meet around conflict. 
So I thought to myself, this is not, something's wrong here. So I walked in the room. It's a long table. Management sits on one side, labor sits on the other. And I said, I'm not going to sit with management. I'm going to go on the labor side. So I sat down on the labor side. It has staff and it has the labor leaders. Well, you would have thought that I had created a firestorm. What are you doing on this side of the table? You get on the other side of the table. You know what I'm doing? You see? The distortion and separation that occurs when love is particularized, held onto a form or a particular expression or a particular idea. And the way you know that is that it's separation. It's distant from one another. Something's happening in which fingers are being pointed. And so there's some sort of self-righteousness, some curtailment, some distortion of that affection. It's fun to poke at it a little. It's fun to play around with it because it's so... It's the same distortion that occurs when we think and shine our love upon a certain person. And then we lose contact with the source of where that love has come from. And we think it's come from that other person, our partner. And so therefore we hold on and latch on to where that partner goes and what they do and how they do it. And if they die, my God, I've lost my love. And yet, even if they die, all we have to do is go back to our heart. And there it is. Where is it gone? We just misplaced it in the forms and expressions of the world. It didn't go anywhere. How could it go anywhere? It's in us. It's always in us. It always will be in us. It's just whether we will access it or not. There's a beautiful story of Mother Teresa. And she was, uh, there was an orphanage in the middle of Beirut, Lebanon. And Beirut, many years ago, was in enormous conflict and they were shelling each other. And she knew of this orphanage in the middle of Beirut. And she said that she was going to go in there and get the kids out. And the priests said, uh, well, let's pray. And Mother Teresa said, okay, we'll pray. Well, pray to God to stop the war so that she could go in. And she says, okay, so now we're going to go in. And the priest says, oh, no, the guns haven't stopped, Mother Teresa. You have to wait until the guns stop. She says, no, the guns will stop. We'll just go in. And the priest said, well, don't you want to give God a little time? <laughs> And she said, God doesn't take time. And she got in her car, and the gun stopped. And she went in with her truck, pulled out all of the kids, took them out. The next day, the gun started again. That is belief in love. That is conviction and faith 
not in the form or expression of love, but in love. And so quickly, we take this enormous thing called love and we narrow it down to a pinhole through which we see the world. And we try all manner of ways of influencing others so that they will access what we think is important because we care about something, or an idea, an attitude, a belief. And we try to proselytize and bring people into, so is to verify our love because we have so much doubt in it. And then you have all kinds of separation conflict, problems. Friend of mine, very dear woman, wonderful heart. Was serving tea in an evening meal to a group of friends and she was spent a lot of time making the meal and the meal was delicious cleaned off the plates brought in some tea and uh, she was just flowing in her warmth and affection and one of the people at the table said well I don't like this kind of tea and boom she went into the kitchen and Tears welled up, and she felt as if she should have known that this person didn't want that tea, and all this kind of self-doubting. And I walked into the kitchen, and I said, don't you doubt your love? Don't do that. Don't narrow the doubt down by yourself. But the, narrow the love down by your self-doubt. Self-doubt has nothing at all to do with that expression of heart. That's extra. That's. But to question our love is to question the very median in which we live, in which we move. And once we have our intention, we know our intention is ethical, and that we're trying not to separate, but to include, then move on that. Walk out into that. The effects of the action are not yours. What happens in response to that movement, what happens in, as reactivity or whatever, that's not yours. Criticism, But we don't doubt our love. We don't doubt from where we came. The base camp. From where we are. We still sit on the union side of the table. And let them squawk. We look for ways to break down that separation in this world. 
Because that's sustained not through love, but distortion. You can see in healthcare in this country something happening, which is very scary to me as a healthcare professional for a number of years. That as the money gets tighter in healthcare, what the HMOs and some of the big hospitals are doing are cutting back on the relationship, the time that healthcare workers are spending with the patients, increasing their productivity so that they see more people. They're still giving the pills on time. You see, the quantifiable qualities of healthcare are still mandated. You get two pills, you get three pills, those are still being given, and they're given at two, four, ten. But the relationship, the time to spend with the patient is being diminished, it's being cut back. What does that mean you're cutting back? You're cutting back hearts coming together and meeting in true health care. Never realizing that healing is much more than the dynamics of getting a pill. But often have to do with the relationship between the healer and the patient. And because love can't be objectified or quantified, I can't say I'm going to increase my productivity of love. I'm going to manufacture that and therefore I'll be able to see patients heal quicker. I can't see it. It's not graspable. It's, it's like the air. I cut back on that because we are so locked into the forms of the world we miss the message for the messenger. And I have you give pills on time. I had two nurse friends, wonderful people. One was very organized and she was, she was like a machine in her nursing. Everything was done timely, orderly, not a lot of care in their heart as she was going through her rounds, but everybody got what they wanted in terms of shampoos and bed baths and all the other things. The other nurse was sloppy in her documentation. She may give you the pill at 2.30 instead of 2 o'clock, but she had a heart of gold. And this second nurse was talking to me about the first nurse, who she admired a great deal for her organization and skill. And I said, Evelyn, who was the second nurse, I said, if I was in the hospital, there is no doubt who I would like coming to my bedside. How can you doubt your heart? How can we do that to ourselves? Love is a transforming quality of mind. See how simple it is and yet profound? That's the Dharma. Extraordinarily simple and yet as profound as the infinite.
friend of mine who is a social worker, hospice social worker, and mentor of mine, uh, was uh, back in the early days of my hospice career, uh, was telling me the story of a patient that she had. And she had this patient who she uh, cared about a great deal, and she said she did applied every strategy and technique she knew. Uh, she did family counseling, she did imaging, imaging work, she did stress reduction, worked with her relaxation response, she did meditation, she... Uh, everything, and uh, her whole bag of tricks, she said, she used on this one patient. And he was a rather demanding man, and uh, she just kept pulling things out of her bag to to help him along the way. And finally, he was fairly close to death, and they had engaged together like this over several weeks to months. And she said to him, she said, of all the things I've given you and done, which one was the most helpful? Thinking that he would say, oh, I really like the guided imagery, or I like the relaxation. Or... He said, you're caring. I always knew you cared. So here we sit, you see growing in sensitivity, growing in the innocence of just being. And some of us look around from a point of view of inadequacy, of a history in which love hasn't had a great deal or hasn't seemed to have a great deal to play upon our lives. And we don't feel very much And yet we come with this enormous sensitivity and this vulnerability, this growing vulnerability and innocence. And we say, I'm not feeling love or affection. Never realizing that the very expression of the sensitivity that you're feeling is love. The very willingness to feel the wind touch your cheek or the sun on your shoulder, or to look at the stars in the sky and have it make an impact upon you, to be touched, to feel it. That is love. It's not an emotion, although sometimes affection and warmth is very much there. But we look for love in places that we think it to be only to have it dissipate in front of our eyes but just to drop into it, to fall into it, to come into it. For it is there in each one of our hearts. Why? Because we are alive. And that is the only requisite of love, for love. So many of us have an inordinate fear of being hurt.
And so we have backed away from any sense of feeling or emotion in ourselves through self-protection, through self-survival. We no longer can reach out and trust in another human being. And we think in some ways our life feels dead to us. But the Dharma is always one step ahead of the problem. The Dharma is always just the backdrop to whatever fear or insecurity may arise. For to hold that feeling, to hold the lifelessness of your heart, the deadness of your heart, to hold that as a light that does not waver is love. And it gets the whole thing going. So no matter what your problem is, no matter how disastrous your life has been, no matter how extreme your abuse, you always have the solution. You always have the solution. And that is because love is more fundamental than the expressions of mine. It is more fundamental than this room. It is more primal. It is more basic. There's a beautiful story of Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, in which a devotee of his was coming to have darshan, a meeting with the uh, Neem Karoli Baba. And he was starting to walk down a mountain to go to darshan, and he slipped and fell and started tumbling, and spider webs uh, he went through a whole bunch of spiders and spiders started crawling over him. And he hated spiders. Spiders had been a particular fear of his his whole life. And he dusts them all off and he gets panicked and he runs into the darshan room and he's just in extreme terror. And he says to Maharaji, how can I love God with so much fear? And Maharaji says, the love of God and the fear of God are the same thing. Meaning that everything, everything contains the truth of love. We may react to something as if it were a problem, but fundamental to the qualities of that thing, there is love. 
And so fearing God, loving God, fearing yourself, loving yourself, doubting yourself, hating yourself, angry at yourself, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? It says nothing about you. It says nothing about the world. It says nothing about the universe. I'd like to read you a story of a particular nine-year-old girl that I worked with. Because the other limiting or another limiting factor, apparent limiting factor of love, is how we become self-absorbed. You'll sometimes notice that when you have a lot of personal problems, then you have no time to hear other people, to listen to other people. You have no time to really meet or to connect because there's so much self-absorption in our own problems. And this, of course can be compounded a great deal when somebody is dying. You can imagine that, given what the dying go through, that coming to acceptance, acceptance meaning that there is love, or the ability for the heart to flow through your self-absorption, is rare. So I'd like to read you about a nine-year-old wonder. I learned the lesson of affection from Anna, a nine-year-old girl who was dying from cystic fibrosis. I was the hospice social worker. Her mother had recently sought a separation from her father, and her father was in a great deal of pain over both this and Anna's illness. We were all gathered at Anna's bed during a breathing crisis in which the child was craning her neck to force as much air as possible into her lungs. After exerting a great deal of uncomfortable effort, Anna looked up and waved us out of the room. Being the social worker, I tried to prepare the family for the fact that Anna was probably ready to die and wanted to be left alone. What she was actually doing behind the closed doors was somehow struggling out of bed to reach the table. There at the table, she made a big I love you poster for her father. Anna called us back into the room and gave the poster to him. She died a week later. Her father had the poster framed. It's not dependent upon maturity of age. It's just the willingness to connect and be connected. For love has its intimation in relationship. It is there that it brings forth, comes forth. It is not that it love brings things together. Rather, it is the fact that all things are already together that love manifests. And the one quality of love is that it can't rest as long as there is movement, as long as there is the absence of itself. 
And so it seeks out forms and expressions of life like meditation, like spiritual development, that allow it to come back to itself in stillness, in quietude. And so it's useful as a meditative question to ask ourselves from time to time, where is there love in this? Where is there love in this? Right here, in my pain, in my anger, in my lust, in my rage, in my intolerance. And however we move with that answer, we come closer. However we answer that question, even partially, we make steps towards realizing infinite love. infinite love. So the practice, we start with love. The way we are with ourselves. The way we hold the content of our minds. Our willingness to forgive ourselves and move on. Our willingness not to participate in the past which robs us of the immediate connectedness of love put all that aside for our heart wants only itself one final story in the hospice where I worked we invited a woman who had a near death experience to come and speak with us and she was a young woman at the time she had her near death experience And she told us the following story. She said some 30 years ago, she was in a store shopping. And as she was walking out of the store, something happened to her where she had an embolism or something. But anyway, she couldn't breathe. And she stopped breathing and just passed out on the sidewalk. And it is said that she says that she left her body and had a whole range of interesting experiences. And she turned around and noticed that there was somebody who was giving her mouth-to-mouth, her body mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, even though she was not a part of that body. She was outside of it in some, some other form. And she said what brought her back into her body was not the resuscitation, but was the compassion the man was feeling for her and out of that compassion that she, he had for her, she returned to her body. And so we return. We come back to the meditation, to our willingness to see, to our willingness to pursue this path until it ends. Out of love, because we cannot rest until it is complete, until we are complete in it. Can we sit for a couple of minutes?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.